Welcome to The Friday Habit with Benjamin Manley and Mark Labriola II. The Friday Habit is for creators, entrepreneurs, and agency owners looking for actionable ideas on how to grow their business and be more profitable. We'll pull from our combined knowledge of over 20 years and interview thought leaders that will inspire you and give you the motivation you need to kick your business into high gear. Buckle up. It's Friday. Hey everyone, Ben here. Mark is out today, but I have an excellent guest I'm really excited to talk with. I have Michelle Seiler Tucker with me. Uh, she's the founder and CEO of Seiler Tucker Incorporated, and she holds the M and AMI Mergers and Acquisitions Master Intermediary title, as well as Certified Mergers and Acquisitions Professional and Certified Senior Business Analyst. Michelle also owns many other businesses in several different industries. And as a 20-year veteran in the M&A industry, she is regarded as the leading authority on buying, selling, fixing, and growing businesses. Her and her firm have sold over a 1,000 businesses in almost every vertical and have a remarkable track record of success. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I have lots of questions for you. But first, let me ask you the most important question. Would you rather have a terrible boss but a great job or a great boss but a terrible job? Neither. I don't want a boss or a job. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) I love it. All right. How about uh, would you rather dine alone or watch a movie by yourself? Which one would you rather do by yourself? Watch a movie by myself. Yeah. What kind of movies yeah. do you like? Um, I love I love true stories. I love anything based upon a true story. Yeah, you like? Uh, do you like documentaries or just uh, like movies based on true stories? I just really like ba- movies based on true stories. Like one of my favorite movies of all time is um, it's called Wish Man, and it's a true story, and it's about Make a Wish Foundation. And it's based on Frank Shankwitz's life story of how Frank Shankwitz grew up, his troubled past, and how he started Make-A-Wish Foundation with one little boy's dream before he died from leukemia. Wow. Uh, so it's a beautiful story. I actually got to go with him in um, Beverly Hills to the red carpet premiere and sit right next to him in a theater. He's a very good friend of mine. Unfortunately, he passed away hmm. um, a few several months ago. But I love I love movies like that, um, like Boston Strong. You know, that's another good favorite movie of mine. I love movies based on true stories. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show with us today. Um, to our listeners, if you have a question for us or something you want to share that's working for your business, take out your phone, record us a voice memo, and email it to hello at thefridayhabit.com. Uh, but yeah, let's jump in. Uh, Michelle, I'd love to ask you first as we get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Like when you were, uh, you know, when you were younger, when you were a kid, were you like, Hey, someday I'm going to buy and sell businesses. Did you see any like inkling in your childhood that this is the direction you would go? Or is this like, like what's the journey you took from being a kid and your dreams to like what you're doing now? Yeah, I never as a kid said, oh my gosh, I'm going to sell businesses one day. <laughs> I'm sell businesses. Uh-huh. But I always said as a kid, Mom, Dad, I'm not going to work for anybody, you know, and they would always ask me why, and I would always say, because I don't like to be told what to do. There you go. <laughs> and it is my biggest pet peeve. Don't tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> and my husband, you think after 28 years together, he would learn that. But um, <laughs> I don't like to be told what to do. So I always knew at a very young age I would be an entrepreneur. 
and I would, you know, call the shots and march to the beat of my own drum. So I always had entrepreneurial, uh, you know, running the spirit running through my blood, I guess. I did get that job and broke my promise to my mom <laughs> mm -hmm. because I was recruited by Xerox. Okay. Uh, Xerox recruited me as a high-volume manager, specialist in, in selling uh, their high-volume equipment. Then within six months, they promoted me to vice president, regional vice president, hmm. over seeing 100-plus sales reps. And wow. then I learned very quickly that I really don't want a job, and I certainly don't want to be a manager in corporate America <laughs> because you can't get uh -huh. anything done. <laughs> right. Too slow for and you, huh? <laughs> that's when I kind of transitioned out of Xerox and started my own franchise sales development and consulting company. And I had equity partnerships in different franchisors. Hmm. And then the, the reason I transitioned from franchising into mergers and acquisitions was really based upon clients' needs. I had so many uh, buyers coming to me and saying, Michelle, I want to buy a business. I want to roll, you know, roll up a business into my existing portfolio. What do you have? I'm like, we only have franchises. And so I was really well known in the franchise industry. I had a great reputation. Um, so, so many buyers would come to me to buy existing businesses. And I kept saying, no, that's not what we do. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, you know what? I need to listen to the consumer. <laughs> listen to the yeah. customers. Give them what they want. Yeah. So that's really how I opened my mergers and acquisitions business over 20 years ago. Wow, that's awesome. So what kind of, uh, just out of curiosity with the franchise situation, what exactly were you were you doing there? So people didn't want to buy specific, you were selling franchises? Is that what I you were doing? I was doing franchise consulting, franchise okay. development, and franchise sales. So I would partner with a franchisor. I would hire, help them with their development strategies uh, to make sure they have all their ducks in a row. I would um, ensure that they have their uh, franchise disclosure documents. You know, I didn't draft them because I'm not an attorney, but I would point them in the right direction. So I would help them with the entire development, and then I would help them sell, and I would help them develop the territories. Okay. So does that mean it would be something like if I was like, hey, my company, Knapsack, if I was like, hey, I want to turn this into a franchise and sell my system to other uh, agency owners? Is that the type of thing that you would basically help me like, hey, here's all the legal stuff you need to think about? I used to do that. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But it's like, yeah. So that's what you were doing, though. You were helping yeah, people. That's what I was doing, yeah. Okay, that's that's pretty cool. I would sit down and I would work with you. I would make sure you have the right infrastructure, that you have the infrastructure on what I call the six Ps that I talk about in my book, Exit Rich. So I would make sure you have you know, a solid infrastructure, a solid foundation in which to handle the growth. I would make sure you have all your processes defined, refined, and I would make sure that you had a, a cookie-cutter system mm -hmm. and training, um, you know, specific training, and I would make sure that you had the right people in the right seats. Right. So I would do all of that, and then I would help you blow it up. <laughs> That's awesome. That's what I did. So when you were doing that, so then you said basically people were like, hey, I just want to buy one business or sell one business and that kind of thing. And you're like, I don't do that. I just I just help you know franchises grow. I set up franchises and sell them. So how, how long did that transition take? Were you just like, hey, instant pivot? Was it a slow transition? or And how long ago was that? Um, it was it wasn't an instant pivot, but it wasn't really slow either. I would say it's mm -hmm. medium speed. Okay. That was over 20 plus years ago that I yeah. started that. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I was still going to keep my franchise business, and I still do favors for friends. You know, I've got people that call me up and say, hey, Michelle, i got this great idea. Do you want to take it on? 
Yep. And I'll be like, yes or no. It just depends upon how much energy it's going to take, you know, versus what's the return going to be. Um, so I still do some things like that, but on a very, very, very small scale. Makes sense. Now, when you started your business doing merchants and acquisitions, uh, have you grown a team that helps you? Do you do it on your own or, or how does that work? No, I have a team. There's no uh, way I would do it on my own. <laughs> There's too many moving parts. Yeah. We have a team of analysts. We have a team of agents. We have a team. We have a team of marketers. We have a complete team. I mean, I got three people on my marketing team that got me on all these podcasts. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, we have a team. And here's the deal with our team. Our team changes. And the reason it changes is because we're in the midst of four colleges. So we have really strong partnerships with the different colleges that we sit in between. And we have a really strong internship program. So we might have 20 people Mm -hmm. and then we might have 15. (laughs) Sure. Oh, (laughs) it makes sense. Yeah. So it kind of fluctuates from time to time. Yeah. But typically it's typically anywhere from 8 to 20 just depending upon our internship programs. Cool. Well, hey, let's, let's, uh, I'd love to dive in a little bit more down to business when it comes to, uh, you know, specifically how to build a business that's sellable and stuff like that. So I'd like to start just like, Hey, if, if I was going to start a business right now from scratch, you know, what kind of stuff would you tell me? Like, here's how to set it up from the beginning to be smart about it and make it sellable. So I can answer all of that. Um, one of the things I think you should know before we dive in is what the statistics are. Steve Forbes, who endorsed my book, Exit Rich, Steve Forbes says 80% of businesses on the market will never sell. Hmm. 80% of businesses on the market will never sell. Now, people just shake their head when I say that. That should be a slap in the face. (laughs) It should be like a huge wake-up call for business owners because you have less than a 20% chance of selling your company. Less than 20%. Okay, so let's talk about why that is. Um, One of the biggest mistakes that business owners make is that they never think about their exit. They never plan for their exit. They think of their business as their baby. Mm -hmm. This is my baby. I'm going to run it forever. Well, first of all, your business is not your baby. Your babies are at home. Go home, hug them, kiss them, love them. Your business is and should be your most valuable asset, and you should treat it as such. So business owners don't think about their exit strategy until they have to due to an internal or external catastrophic event occurring. Internal is health issues, partners' disputes, divorce, death. External is this pandemic we're in. The worst time to sell your business is during a pandemic. The worst time to sell your business is during a catastrophic event occurring. If there's partners' disputes, if there's divorce, if there's health issues, your business is going to be trending downward, and your business will not be sellable. And business owners think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to keep my business forever. Well, nothing lasts forever. Wake up. (laughs) Tell everybody, wake up. You know, I just had a lady call me from Texas and ask me if I could sell her husband's business. He dropped out of a heart attack. And he was 40. And he was 40. Wow. Left her with a mountain of debt. She doesn't know anything about the financials, knows nothing about the business. I started asking her questions. He has no employees. He really didn't have he didn't really didn't have a solid infrastructure in place. And he didn't have a business. He had a job. And all the data was in his head. So when he died, the business died. Okay, so nothing lasts forever. We're selling another company right now. It's been on a market for you know several months, but we got several LOIs on it. And the owner, husband and wife, the owner was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. 
Okay, so nothing lasts forever. So build your business from the beginning to sell. We talk about in Exit Rich, what I call the GPS exit model. And let's just walk through it. So let's the GPS it. exit model, Ben, if you want to drive somewhere in Virginia, what do you do? Are you old school? You pull out a paper map or do you go to your phone and go to Google Maps like everybody uh, else does? Definitely going to be using my, my Google Maps, yeah. So you go to Google Maps and what's the first thing you plug in? Uh, the address. The destination, right? Mm-hmm. Right? If you don't plug in an address, your destination, what happens? Uh, nothing. <laughs> Or I get lost. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Or you get lost. You drive around. Yeah. Run out of gas. <laughs> so business owners don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. Business owners don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. So let's think about that. Mm-hmm. Business owners have no destination. They have no end game. They have no desired end game. No desired sales price. They're driving around in circles. They're driving up and down the financial hills to end up exiting poor. Yep. So... All, all of your listeners should stop right now, grab a pen, grab a paper, and figure out what is your destination, what is your end game, what is your desired sales price, what do you want to sell your business for? Pick a number. And Ben, everybody gets hung up on a number, but like I always say, it's just a number. It's mm-hmm. a number. You can adjust it along the way. So right. let's say you want to sell your company for $20 million. Boom, there's a number. $20 million. Now, what does a GPS model need to know? Where you currently are, where you're starting from. Yep. And in other words, what is your current evaluation? What are you worth today? Right. Do you know that most business owners never, ever get a business evaluation until they think about selling during a catastrophic event? Hey, that's me right now. I've never done evaluation, you know? You've never. And how long have you been in business? A long time. I've been in business for nine years. Okay, that's not really a long time. <laughs> oh, okay. Feels like it to me. <laughs> I had a client that came to me the other day who was in business 40 years. Wow. Never had a business valuation. Yep. So here's the bottom line. Ben, we go to the doctor once a year to get an annual checkup to make sure our heart's still ticking, we're still kicking. We take our cars to the mechanic to get an annual tune-up. But we don't take our most valuable asset, which is our business, and get an annual valuation checkup. Every business owner, including you, Ben, (laughs) should get an annual business checkup evaluation because there are events to increase valuation or events to decrease valuation. This pandemic is a perfect example of that. You should know every year what your business is worth. So let's say you want to sell for $20 million. You're currently worth $5 million. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, you don't go to the CPA to get this evaluation checkup. You don't do that. Most, most CPAs don't know how to evaluate businesses, and they certainly don't know how to evaluate synergies. You align yourself with an M&A expert, mergers and acquisitions expert, that knows how to evaluate your business based upon the proprietary assets, the synergies that your business has. And you get them to do an annual evaluation checkup for you. So let's hmm. say you want to sell for $20 million, you're currently worth $5 million. Now the next step in the model is time frame. Yep. How long does it take to get there? When do you want to sell for twenty million? Let's say you want to do this in ten years. Then the next step is identify who your buyers are going to be. Now, notice I say buyers, not buyer, because clients come to me all the time and say, "Michelle, Michelle, I have the buyer. I just need you to represent me with this one buyer." And I always say, "No, <laughs> I won't represent you with this one buyer without marketing your business and bringing right. lots of buyers." 
And the reason for that is because I have to come in, I'm going to evaluate your business, I'm going to evaluate it on the six Ps. Most businesses run out of, run on three cylinders, not six cylinders. So we have to strengthen your weakest Ps, and we're going to have to fix the business, tweak the business, grow the business. We're going to have to get your financial house in order because most businesses... Their financials are a disaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have to clean up the financials. We have to get everything into the data room for one buyer. And guess what? I can promise you in all likelihood, this one buyer will not close on the sale of your business. Mm-hmm. You always need backup buyers. Plus, Ben, there's no way to maximize the value of your business if we can't create competition with a party of one. There's five types of buyers. I don't know if you knew that. There's five types. Yep. Okay. 90% of buyers are first-time buyers. They don't buy $20 million companies. They buy Mm -hmm. coffee shops and restaurants or dry cleaners and yogurt, ice cream stores. Then you have turnaround specialists. They buy distressed assets. They don't buy multi-million dollar companies. Then we have PEGs, private equity groups. PEGs buy two ways. They buy based upon platforms and add-ons. So you're a digital agency, right? You design websites. So yep. let's say that a private equity group wants to get into the digital marketing space, digital you know, media company. They won't even consider your company unless, unless you have at least $3 million in EBITDA. Hmm. EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Now, if they're already in this space, they already have a platform in media, then they will consider add-ons for under a million dollars in EBITDA. Hmm. The fourth type of buyer is strategic slash competitors. They typically pay the highest multiple of EBITDA because they're buying synergies that will help catapult their current business to the next level. The last type of buyer is what I call storm chasers. They're industry agnostic, they're serial entrepreneurs, and they chase EBITDA. Hmm, gotcha. So those are your five types of buyers. Got so it. now that you have your plan, we need to reverse engineer it and say, okay, if we want to sell for $20 million, where does the gross revenues, the COGS, operating expenses have to have to be? Most importantly, where does the EBITDA need to land? If you want to sell for $20 million, you need to have an EBITDA of 4 to $5 million, depending upon your synergies, your proprietary assets. Then the next big step is, what are the synergies? What are the characteristics that these buyers are looking for? And you build your business based upon Hmm. their specific criteria. It's kind of like when someone starts a business, Ben, they go, here's my widget. Here's my target market. And they build everything for that target market, right? Right. Uh Your business is your widget. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. These buyers are your target market. You should be building your business to meet their specific criteria. So when you're ready, you can sell your business for that $20, $30, $40, $50 million price tag. Make sense? Yes, I think so. So let me ask you two questions. So it sounds like what you're saying is that your real product is the business you're building, not the thing you're doing for your customers. Your real product is the business itself and you need to design that business to be sellable for one of these five types of buyers, which it sounds like, like you said, the strategic slash synergy buyers, the people that are buying a strategic or competitors, sounds like that's a pretty good uh, target market because if you can build your business. So it's a private equity group. So it's okay, so it's a private group. equity. Okay, but that needs to be at least $3 million. And, and even for a platform. Not for an add-on, just for the okay, platform. Okay, gotcha. And then can you, one more time, define EBITDA for us? Um, you said that it's earnings, 
after or did you say before? Earnings before, other? EBITDA. Earnings before, interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So we want to find out what those earnings are before the CPA makes their adjustments. Right. And that's different from, from the gross income of the business. Correct. And I will tell you, one of the number one mistakes that business owners make, because you asked me that question earlier, is that business owners don't know their numbers. Yeah. I had a business owner the other day tell one of my agents that their gross is 200 and their net is 400. <laughs> wow. How are they doing that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I had another client in California that say their, their gross revenues is $3 million. I said, great. What's your EBITDA? What's your net income? No idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you familiar with um, the Profit First Method by Mike Michalowicz? Have you read that book or heard of that? Okay. I have not read the book, but I've been on their podcast, and one of the Profit First franchisees is um, in my mastermind. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. We So we follow that that system here at our, our business, and it, it basically helps us set aside percentages for different things like upfront, so it's easier to make sure that all of our operating expenses stay below like around 50% of our total income. You know, it's not the same thing you're talking about, but it helps us like, it's a simple way when we're not, you know, financial professionals uh, to kind of keep track of some of that. Um, yeah, I think it's a good program. There's another lady that does Profit First and she is an interim, C, an interim CFO for many companies and she brings me into quite a few companies to get them ready for sale. All right, we're going to pause this conversation here. Uh, go to thefridayhabit.com. There you can find show notes for this episode. Uh, there you can also find links to our websites and ways to get in touch. At the bottom of the page, you can download our guide to the Friday Habit System that will show you how to set aside one full day each week dedicated to working on your business instead of in your business. If you're not already, make sure you subscribe. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear next week's episode, subscribe so you get notified. Uh, also, leave us a review in Apple Podcast app uh, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to potentially be on one of our episodes uh, with a question you ask us, go ahead and record a quick message in your phone, voice memo, and email it to hello at the Friday Habit.com. Until next time, live every day like it's Friday. <laughs>